Good to see you. Glad to be here with you this morning. And uh, really appreciate the uh, time of worship that we had. Really appreciate Jairus and Stephanie and their leadership in worship this morning. And I say this to you a lot, but uh, worship, coming every Sunday and being here with you and singing about the things that are important to us and giving God His due, that, that is important to me. That sets my... Uh, that gets me pointed in the right direction every week and uh, kind of gets me realigned and gives me uh, the, the focus and the clarity that I need. And if you think I didn't know pastors needed to do that, then you don't know me very well. You know, just like you, and I got to get, get pointed in the, direction, in the right direction uh, every week. And uh, maybe, you're, maybe you don't have that problem. I don't know, but I appreciate the opportunity to do that. So... Uh, about a month ago, if you're a tennis fan, you already know this. About a month ago, something amazing happened in the world of tennis, uh, women's tennis particularly. I don't know how many of you follow women's tennis, but uh, something amazing happened in the U.S. Open. A woman named Sloane Stevens won the championship. And that was amazing for two reasons. One reason it was amazing is because it's the first time uh, any American woman with a last name other than Williams has won any Grand Slam event since, get this, Jennifer Capriotti, if you remember her. She's using a walker now. You know, that's how long that's been. Uh, but what makes it even more remarkable, what makes it even more remarkable is where she came from. Only six weeks earlier, she was ranked 957th among women tennis players. From 957th to a a Grand Slam win, U.S. Open, and a $3.7 million check, right? So pretty good. So we like those kinds. I love to hear stories like that. You know, I think most people do. I think the reason we do is because we have kind of a vision for our own lives, you know, and we feel like we're 957th or 958th maybe. But we've got a vision, and we're like, hmm, see, that could still happen to me. That could still happen to me because it happened to her. We like stories like that because it makes success seem accessible to us. But the truth is there's a, there's a pretty big backstory to how Sloan Stevens got from 957th to first place. I mean, there's a pretty significant backstory. It didn't just fall out of the sky. It didn't just happen to her. It was a process, a lifelong process of hard training and setbacks and foot surgery and rehabilitation. And I mean, it's, it, there's a, there was a backstory to it. It didn't just happen to her. So we're in a study called Who? Me? And it's a study of the life of Gideon. Gideon's a man that God used to change circumstances in the, life, uh, in the lives of his people. And we're learning how God used Gideon to change these circumstances because we know that God wants to use people to change circumstances. He might even want to use us. He, he does want to use us to change circumstances. And so we look at what Gideon gets done, and we're like, maybe that could happen. And, and, and we haven't actually seen what Gideon gets done yet. We've been in this two-week study. It's our third week in this study. We haven't actually seen Gideon get anything done yet. But here's a spoiler alert. In a couple weeks from now, Midian, uh, Gideon is going to rout the Midianites. He's going to blow right past those. He's going to clear the land of Israel of Midianites. And he's going to usher in a 40-year period of peace. 
Now, I remember, it wasn't until this morning I was thinking about this. Every time I read 40 Years of Peace, which happens several times in Judges, 40 years, a whole generation of peace, I think, well, that's not very long. But think of this. How would you like to know, how would you like the United States to experience a 40-year period of peace? I mean, all of a sudden, that would be like, whoa, that feels like a pretty long time all of a sudden. Well, Gideon, he's victorious over the Midianites, and he brings 40 years of peace. Uh, That's pretty good for a guy who's found threshing wheat in a wine press, right? He might as well have been 957th on God's list of most likely guys to help me with this. And, And somehow, God uses him to get it done. But, but we, all, we need to know that there's a backstory for Gideon, too. Gideon uh, has a backstory. We're tempted to think that success and influence and opportunity and impact, that it just happens to people, that it just kind of falls out of the sky, or that it's arbitrary, that some people get to have influence and other people don't, you know, and, and maybe I will or maybe I won't. But there's actually a lot more to it than that. There's actually a divine process at work in the lives of people that some people respond to and some people don't. And how people respond determines, how people respond to this divine process determines who God will use to change circumstances and who God won't use to change circumstances. It doesn't just fall out of the sky, it's part of a divine process process. You can see that process at work in the lives of men and women in the Bible. You can see that process at work in the lives of men and women in the history of the church. And we're going to see that process today in the, in the, at work in the life of Gideon. And as a result of looking at what goes on in his life, we're going to be better equipped to see what's going on in our own lives and not just to recognize it, but also to respond properly to it as we partner with God to make disciples and make a difference. So, if you'll take your Bibles, open them to Judges chapter 6. And the first thing we're going to do in just a minute is we're going to read our text, Judges chapter 6. But if you're just joining us today, I want to give you a quick, uh, quick, quick review of where we're at. A couple things you need to know before we begin reading this passage. That Judges is a book of cycles. It's a book of downward spirals. As God's people experience peace... But then they kind of move away from that. So we actually have a graph that's kind of helped us think about this, where God's people are experiencing peace, and they're they're being faithful to God, and they... At some point, they give in to the cultural pressure around, and they start to worship idols. They turn away from God, and that's that first that's that first step on this on this spiral. This they, there's disobedience, and then God brings discipline into their lives through the through the uh, oppression of other nations. Other nations come, and God uses these nations to discipline Israel, and Israel comes to a place of repentance. And so when they repent, God brings deliverance. And we've seen that cycle. And we've also kind of honed in on the deliverance part of the cycle. And we've said, wow, God uses people. God brings the deliverance, but he uses people to do that. So people are part of this deliverance process. And that's what the book of Judges is about. The book of Judges is about judges. These aren't guys with gavels. These are men and women that God raises up to change circumstances. And that's who the book of Judges is about. So it's these downward spirals. And we're in the middle of one of these spirals when we begin reading in Judges chapter 6. 
The very last verse of chapter 5 says there was peace for 40 years. And then the very first verse of chapter 6 says that the Israelites began doing evil. So we go, we're, we're going back around this spiral once again. And that's where we pick up our story about Gideon. So Israel, the first few verses of, this, the first few verses of, of, of uh, this study, we've seen that we're in the downward part of this spiral. And uh, it gets so bad, verse 6 says, Midian so impoverished the Israelites, they cried out to Yahweh for help. And so we're at this point, we're at the repentance part of the cycle. Now God is going to respond to that. God shoulder taps this guy named Gideon. He's a timid man. And he, God shoulder taps him and calls him mighty warrior and then gives him the assignment of delivering Israel from Midian. And the only reason Gideon even said yes was because God made a promise to him. God said, listen, you do this and I will be with you. I will be with you. He repeats it several times in this encounter that we're going to read. I will be with you. And that's the key that draws Gideon into saying yes to this, to this assignment. And so with our Bibles open, we've, we've kind of summarized the first six verses now. And, and, and Israel is being oppressed by the Midianites. So the Midianites are these desert bullies who come and, and steal Israel's lunch money every year. And Israel's getting tired of it. So they cry out to the Lord. And the first thing God does is God activates a prophet in, in verse 7. And then God activates a, another person, this man named Gideon, beginning in verse 11. So what we're going to do is we're going to read through some of this in verse 11. And then we're going to really stop and drill down beginning in verse 25 because that's where our study actually begins. But just to give us a sense, God responds to his people. He raises up someone to deliver them. A man named Gideon. So verse 11 says, the angel of Yahweh. Now remember when we see capital O, capital O, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's not just, it's translated Lord, but that's not just the word, the Hebrew word for Lord. That's actually a translation when it's in all caps of God's name, Yahweh. And it's translated as Lord kind of out of reverence and tradition. Sometimes, though, we use that interchangeably. So we'll say Yahweh instead of the Lord. So the angel of Yahweh came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite. We're in verse 11. Where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. And when the angel of Yahweh appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon said, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? If, where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not Yahweh bring us out of Egypt? But now Yahweh has abandoned us and put us in the hand of the Midianites. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the I am the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you. I want you to see. This, this, this is the, kind of the third time this appears. It's verse 10, uh, or verse 11, sorry, verse 12. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Verse 14, am I not sending you, God says? Yeah, I'm going to be with you. And then here again in verse 16, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites together. Now, what would you expect to happen next? This is what we see take place here. What would you think is going to happen next? You would expect that Gideon is going to go and get his army and they're going to go fight the Midianites. 
That's not what happens next. What happens next begins in verse 25. That same night, this is the same, 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 same 24-hour period. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take that second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to Yahweh your God on top of this height. And using the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than the daytime. In the morning, when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it, cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. And they asked each other, who did this? And when they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. And the men of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die because he's broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you going to try to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon Jerubbabal, saying, Let Baal contend with him, because he broke down Baal's altar. Gideon gets a new name. Jerubal, uh, which means the guy who, who uh, went mano a mano with Baal. This is something like that. <laughs> so, now, the, last week we talked about the call, how God calls Gideon to this assignment, this initial call. And here's what we want to do. We want to talk today about what happened after Gideon said, okay, I'll do it. Because what happens next is so significant. And there are a bunch of spiritual principles that are at work here. And as I studied this passage, I found that they're just kind of layered on top of it. So you really have to sort them out and kind of tease them out and separate them to appreciate the different spiritual principles that are being, being uh, put to use here in this, practice, in this passage. And that's what I want us to do today. I want us to tease out some of these spiritual principles. But first, in order to do that, we really have to understand the narrative, what happens in this story. So... You would expect that after God calls Gideon to go and deliver Israel from the Midianites, that he would go and do that, that he would actually begin at least, okay, so maybe he musters an army, but pretty soon, but we, we would get right into the action. But that's actually not what happens here. What happens next, after God calls Gideon to this, what happens next seems like a diversion. It seems a little bit like a bait and switch. Uh, that God calls Gideon to one thing and then actually ends up having him do something else. I don't know if that has ever happened to you. That you feel like God called me to this and it actually turned into this. And you feel like, I'm not sure this is what we agreed was going to happen. I'm not sure that this is what I signed up for. And it actually feels a little bit like a diversion to you. Well, I don't know about you, but it sure did happen to Gideon. And God said to Gideon, uh, hey, let's go get Midian. And uh, by the way, before you do that, I want you to go to your dad's pagan temple and tear down the village idol. So here's what's going on here. 
In those days, in the lives of God's people, instead of wholeheartedly worshiping Yahweh, the true God, uh, the God who had established a covenant with his people, instead of worshiping him, the, the nation of Israel succumbed to the cultural pressure around them, and they worshiped God, but they worshiped God plus, which is always a dangerous formula. They worshiped God plus the gods of the people around them the nations that didn't know the true God. And that's who Baal was. Baal was the supreme God. Baal means Lord. He was the supreme God of the Canaanites. And Baal had a bay, and her name was Asherah. And Gideon's dad had built an, an altar to Baal and Asherah. He built a little temple on his property. Uh, and the whole village worshipped at this temple. And, and it, this temple, or this place of worship, consider, consisted of an altar to Baal, where the Israelites would come and offer sacrifice. And, and then it also had, right there, what's called an Asherah pole. Now, uh, an Asherah pole, it was, a, it was a totem. Could have been a tree, but probably was just a pole carved. And it was basically a totem to Asherah. And this kind of thing, this kind of setup, an altar and a totem, was a common arrangement in Canaanite villages. The problem was it was also a common arrangement in the villages of the nation of Israel at this point in their history. And that's the problem, that they had turned from the true God, and God loved them too much to let them just sit there like that, in that state. And so he begins this process we've seen of divine discipline. And God gives, and, and as they respond to that, God wants to raise up Gideon to deliver his people from the Midianites because they, they respond to this discipline and God brings Gideon. And so God gives Gideon his first assignment, which he'd not said anything about when Gideon signed up for this. And the assignment was this, go get one of your dad's bulls, get the second bull, for some reason, some significance there, get the second bull, the one that's seven years old. Maybe seven years old because it's been seven years that they've been oppressed by the Midianites. Maybe seven years old because he needs a big enough bull to do the work because there's a big job. And the job is this. Get your dad's bull and use it to tear down your dad's altar. And then build a proper altar to, to me. And while you're at it, take that totem and chop it up. Your name's Gideon. That means hacker. That means shredder anyway. So you look like Tom Sawyer, you know. So saw up that, saw up that Asherah pole and uh, use it for some firewood. And when you're done with your dad's bull taking down the altar, kill your dad's bull and start that Asherah pole burning and offer this bull as a sacrifice to me. Yikes. That's Gideon's assignment. And that's what he does. He gets ten of his servants, and they, they do it. And our narrator, verse 27, is, is sure to point out that he does this in the middle of the night. Okay, we get a little bit of insight into his character here. Uh, because he does it in the middle of the night, and he tells us because he was afraid of his family and the other guys in the village. Afraid of his dad, right? Gonna go. He was afraid of his dad and afraid of the people in the village. And so he goes and does it at, at night. So we get a little bit of insight into his character, but technically God didn't say do this during the daytime. God didn't say you've got to do it during the day, so, so it's okay. One guy I read said, uh, pointed out that in this particular instance, obedience is essential, heroism is optional. 
So, so he goes the way of obedience sans heroism and in the middle of the night tears down this altar. And it, the, the guys wake up, you know, the village wakes up and they, that morning and they look and they see this smoking bull on a brand new altar. And they're like, what has gone on here? And it doesn't take them long. It says they investigated. It's just a little short sentence. It says, uh, they, inve- they asked each other, verse 29, who did this? And when they carefully investigated, it doesn't look like it took them long. They had, he had 10 guys helping him. You got 10 guys helping you, hard to keep a secret. And they're like, you know, everyone's like, Gideon did it. <laughs> so Gideon does it. And now his life is on the line. They, they want him. They, they want to kill him. And he pretty much knew this would happen, which is why he did it at night. But, you know, it's still... And so, what's going on here? What's going on in this story? Uh, there are a number of spiritual principles at work here. But when you study how God calls and uses people in Scripture, you recognize at least one thing that's going on here. At least one thing that's going on here is God is proving Gideon. God is proving Gideon. He's testing him for the purpose of qualifying him and preparing him for the bigger job that God's got ahead for him, delivering Israel from the Midianites. He's proving him. And the basic test is this. God has just promised three times, I will be with you. Last week we said God's vision is always accompanied by his presence. Right? So God's made the promise of his presence, and now God wants to know if Gideon is going to trust him enough to actually act on that promise. It's not enough just to believe or or feel good about the promise or or, uh, think it's a lovely promise. But God wants someone who's going to act on the promise. That's what it's going to take to defeat the Midianites. Someone who's going to act on the promise of his presence. That's what spiritual leaders do. They act on the promise of God's presence. And before God can use Gideon in this big way, he needs to prove and refine Gideon in this more specific way. Now, this is still risky. It's, it's risky for Gideon. He's going to be in jeopardy of his life. It's not a no-brainer. It's not an easy assignment. But it's still not the high stakes of driving out the whole nation of Midian. But it is high stakes for Gideon. A lot's riding on what he's going to do uh, with this promise of God's presence. And another principle that kind of emerges is that his, his future influence is going to depend on his present obedience. What, what, he's going, what God wants to be able to use Gideon for is going to depend on what Gideon does right now. And then one more thing to note about this test is that it is, it's not just an arbitrary test. This is a real test. It's not just an arbitrary issue. It's a core issue that God wants Gideon to deal with before he goes and deals with Midian. It's a core issue because it has to do with idolatry and spiritual fidelity. See, this is a core thing that God has called uh, Gideon to deal with. It has to do with fidelity to the true God. The whole reason that, that God is disciplining his people in the first place, is because of this issue. So God gives Gideon an assignment, not an arbitrary assignment, but a really important assignment. It's not as big as the assignment God wants to give him, but right now it's a core issue. God wants Gideon to clean house and get things back on track in his own village to set an example for the rest of the nation on what it's going to take to succeed, what the problem really is. Because you remember... uh, 
Israel, Israel is, until Israel deals with this issue, the core issue of idolatry and faithfulness to God, until Israel deals with this, they're going to continue to have problems because their problem is not the Midianites, right? Their problem is spiritual unfaithfulness. So this is not an arbitrary test of Gideon's character. This is a core issue that God wants Gideon to deal with. So Gideon gets this assignment. It's a big assignment. You think about all the different dynamics. It's son against father. It's citizen. uh, 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 Citizen against a whole village of elders. And it also requires Gideon to deal with some of his own core issues and to shake off any spiritual baggage that he might have from his upbringing. See, remember, he was brought up to worship Yahweh and he was brought up to worship God and Baal and Asherah. So now he has to go down in the middle of the night and tear down the altar of a God that he was brought up honoring. Now, there are different kinds of scary in this story. One kind of scary is tearing an altar down in the daylight so that people see you. But I would think another level of scary is tearing down the altar of a God you were taught to honor in the middle of the night. There's just a little spook element to that, you know, that makes me think that, could, that would be kind of scary too because Gideon was brought up with this kind of mixed theology. But so much is riding on this because this is a core problem in his culture. This is the whole reason his country is having the problem that it's having. And his future influence is going to depend on what he does right now. And, and the well-being of the country is going to depend on what he does right now. So he acts. He tears down the altar. He chops up the Asherah pole. He builds another altar and offers this bowl on it and burns it up with, this, with the firewood from that Asherah pole. And what happens next? God protects him. In a surprising way, his dad actually defends him. Yeah, that's my son. He tore all that down. Yeah, no, no telling kids these days, you know. But if Baal's real God, let him take care of himself. And who saw his dad being the one to protect him? We wouldn't have predicted, you would have predicted the exact opposite. But instead, God said he would be with him, and he was. And all of this, okay, it all processes Gideon. It proves him. It tests him. It refines him. And it makes him sure that as he goes out against Midian in a few weeks, that he's not going to be trusting anyone other than Yahweh, the true God of his people. So this test kind of develops Gideon's own trust in God. This test is an opportunity for God to demonstrate his faithfulness, that he will be with him. And that's what's going on in this passage. God is proving Gideon and preparing him for the assignment that he has next. So, with all of this in mind, I want us to talk about us today because God works the same way in our lives and we said at the beginning of this study you know what this study is not for our benefit 
This study of who, me, it's not really, we're not the end users. My vision for this, these, these Sundays is not for you as the end user of this information. My vision is that there will be people whose lives will be changed because you have uh, experience these things that we've talked about that because that we've grown and responded to the truths we learned and so that not just our the lives of other people will be changed because there are other people whose lives are dependent on what we do with what God has entrusted to us and we like the idea of future influence we love that idea we love to picture a successful end product we like to think of the, a life of influence. We like, to think of, we like to picture the opportunity to do something meaningful, to accomplish something meaningful in our career or in our church as a Jesus follower. We like to picture this end product. We want to have a strong marriage. We, we want to have a strong family. We want to make disciples and make a difference in the world. We like this end product. But that end product doesn't just fall out of the sky. Okay, It doesn't just happen. Getting to that end product always requires a divine process that we've got to respond to. And we are always in the middle of that divine process. Whether you came in this morning and things are going great for you, or you came and you're having lots of fun, or you came in this morning and things are hard and all you see is challenge ahead, which, whichever of those is true, it doesn't matter. Those, those are part of what God is using in your life as a process. You saw me almost fall off there, right? Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter what's going on. The different elements that are part of your life right now, today, are the elements that God wants to use to prepare you for what he has ahead. So I want to I state some of these principles. I want to call them out. I want to give them some names so that you can be aware of them. You can kind of see them at work in your life and you can uh, respond to them properly. The first of those would be this, that God uses people who act on the promise of his presence. If you want to be used by God, if you want to make disciples and make a difference in the world, you're going to have to become comfortable being a person who acts on the promise of God's presence. What that means is you sometimes, God will call you to obey him when all you have is the promise that he will be with you. It's like Jesus said, when you go make disciples, that's the one place where we know we always have God's presence with us. You go make disciples, I will be with you always. Sometimes that's the only promise we get. We like to, we like to have a signed guarantee of how things are going to turn out. Or we like to know how things are going to line up between now and then. But sometimes all we can do is act on the promise of God's presence. And that's how God works. He may be calling you to something that all you really have is the promise of his presence. Well, that's how God works. God may give you an assignment where all you have to go on is faith and the knowledge that this is something God would have you to do. God may give you an assignment to put your relationship with him above your relationship with someone else, like Gideon had to do with his dad. And all you've got is the promise that, listen, if you'll put me first, I will be with you. God may call you to uh, put your relationship with him uh, or, or uh, to, to do something that is risky and maybe costly to you. He may call you to do, and, and, and you know that if I do this, I may lose something important to me. I may lose my life. And all you have is the promise of God's presence. 
calling you to do that. God may call on you to sift through your own belief system and throw out some of the junk that you inherited from your parents or from the culture around you that is inhibiting your relationship with him. And he wants you to sift through that junk and throw it out like Gideon had to do. If you want to make disciples and make a difference, you will need to become a person who's comfortable taking action, taking action just on the promise of God's presence. And it's only as you do that that God can prove you and refine you and demonstrate his own faithfulness to you. So that's one principle that's at work here, that God uses people who act on the promise of his presence. Another principle that that we can identify in our lives from this passage is that future influence depends on present obedience. For Gideon, failure in this assignment is the end of the line. That's it for him. There is going to be no delivering Israel from the Midianites if Gideon doesn't respond to this situation properly. There's going to be no leadership and no influence in the lives of God's people if Gideon doesn't get this right today. It's kind of the opposite of the crowbar principle that we talk about at Trinity. The crowbar principle, as we stated at Trinity, is is this. God's reward for a job well done is a bigger crowbar, right, and a bigger rock to move with it. That's God's reward for a job well done. Well, God's response to a job poorly done, it's the opposite. It's like, give me that crowbar, you know? If you can't use that, then here's a screwdriver. See what you can do with that, you know? I mean, God's response to a job poorly done is less, not more. Future influence, what God wants to do in the future, depends on what we do right now. See, God has created us to do good works, Ephesians 2.10. He's created us to do good works. He's prepared them beforehand for us to, but, but we don't get to connect with those good works if we don't manage what's right in front of us right now. So you know what that does for me? When I think about this principle, here's what it does for me. It heightens the importance of everything I do. I mean, it heightens the importance of today. It heightens the importance of what you have this week to manage. Because you're like, oh, I just got the, but what I want to do is, the, you know what? The present is what matters. It heightens the importance of your marriage right now. It heightens the importance of what you do in your family right now. It heightens the importance of how you handle your job right now. It heightens the importance of how you handle everything in your life right now. Because future influence depends on how you handle the mundane parts of your life, the parts that seem mundane right now. They're really important because future influence is depending on them. That's the second principle. And a third principle speaks to core issues. We've got to have, we want to be people that God uses to change circumstances. We've got to have our core issues in order. God gave Gideon an assignment that was at the center, not the fringes of following him. God said to Gideon, deal with idolatry in your own hometown. And I think part of that was because God wanted Gideon to deal with his, to kind of come to grips with his own mixed theology. God wanted Gideon to go into battle knowing there is only one God who's going to help him, and that's the God whose altar he built, not the God whose altar he tore down. That's a core issue. If we want God to use us, we've got to deal with these core issues, and they're the same for us as they are for Gideon, as they were for him. Uh, they're issues of undivided loyalty to God, if you want God to use you, you've got to deal with that core issue. Who are you going to put first in your life? Who do you follow above all? 
uh, core issues of character, personal purity, integrity, even in the small things. These are core issues, but they determine uh, God's willingness to use us in the future. And if you want to be a person of influence and accomplishment in God's kingdom, you've got to deal with these core issues first. The future isn't going to happen until we deal with these things. So in order to build these things in you, in order to refine and prove you for what's ahead, God's going to bring some things into your life. He's going to bring situations into your life that you don't have any control over, that are just going to be, wow, this happened to me, and you've got to respond to it properly. God's going to bring, give you assignments that you're going to sign up for. And then all of a sudden, they're going to change a little bit. And you're like, well, I thought I signed up for this, and it's turned into this, and I don't know that I want that. But it's, it's part of God's refining you, improving. God's going to bring challenges into your life. They're going to seem insurmountable. They're part of God's proving process in your life to qualify you and prepare you for what's next. One leader calls these items process items, okay? He's a guy, he's an engineer, actually, who studied the lives of uh, people in church history and in the Bible. He's got a really interesting book called The Making of a Leader, and he kind of calls out these different situations, and he gives them this label process items. These are all different process items that God wants to use in your life. Some of them you signed up for, some of them you didn't sign up for, but they're all things that God wants to use that heighten the importance of what we do today. And it's all part of his work, in preparing you for the good works that God wants to accomplish in you and through you. As he develops your faith in him, as he demonstrates his faithfulness to you, as he increases your stewardship. So, my question for you and how we're going to close this morning is by thinking about some of the process items that might be in your life right now. I'm going to bet that as we've been talking this morning, uh, maybe you've started thinking about something going on in your life. My goal is for you to think about it a little differently than, than maybe when you came in this morning. And instead of seeing as this awful thing has happened to you or this hard thing you're in the middle of, those things may still be true, but it could also be a process item that God is using to qualify you and to prepare you and refine you for even more significant things that God wants to do in your life. So what are the assignments? or situations or challenges that are around you right now that you might say, I think this is a process item. What I'd like to do is encourage, I want want to encourage you to act on the promise of God's presence in that process item and to do what he's calling you to do because it's not just today's assignment uh, that depends on it. It's the future. And it's not just a small group of people that depend on you getting this right Your whole family may depend on you getting this process item right. Your whole church may depend on you getting this process item right. This valley may depend on you. You're like, who, me? Yes. You getting this process item right. There may be a people group in another part of the world that might depend on you getting this process item So it's the future that's at stake in addition to our present stewardship of what God has given us right now.
Well, here's what I want to do. I'm going to bet there's at least one situation in your life that you suspect might be a process item. I want you to think about that. What I'd like for you to do is identify that. Take a minute to talk to God about that process item. Say, I think this might be. And see if, you know, just talk to God about that and reframe it a little bit in your mind as instead of a, you know, instead of this horrible thing or whatever big Something God wants to use to refine you. And then as you identify that process item and begin to talk with God about how to respond, how do you respond to his presence? What's the right way to respond to this process item? And as you think about that, I'm going to give you a minute or so to think about that privately. And then I want to to close by praying for you that God will help you identify and then respond properly to these process items. So if you'll just take a minute, bow your heads. And this is a time for you and the Lord to just go over some things. Identify at least one thing in your life that you think might be a process item. And then identify the proper response and pray about it. So if you identified that situation, that assignment, that challenge that you think is a process item for you, what, how does God want you to respond to that? How do you respond to that in a way that demonstrates uh, you acting on the promise of God's presence in that situation? Father, we are so thankful that we are your children, that you're at work in the world, that you are sovereign, you're orchestrating uh, history and uh, towards, a, towards a, a goal of the restoration of the world through Jesus. And you're using us in this process. And uh, you're paying attention to our lives and you're cultivating us and growing us and, and increasing our stewardship as we respond to you. You're developing us as your children. Thank you so much for that. Thanks for these examples in Scripture that give us the opportunity to see patterns of how you work. And I want to pray for my brothers and sisters who follow Jesus with me here, that you will help each one of them as they've thought about, they've been thinking about the process items in their lives. And, And they're trying to determine how you want them to respond. And I'm sure that that so many of these responses seem outlandish and super difficult. And the only reason they'd even take this step is because you've promised to be with them as they obey you. I pray that you will encourage them with that promise. That you will help us to respond properly to to the process items that you bring into our lives because we know there's a lot at stake. There's a world that depends on us getting this right and being your people who respond to you with whole hearts. We want to be that people. Please help us through Jesus. Amen.